Father, we're going to open Your Word again tonight, and we pray that as we do that, Your Spirit would speak to us through Your Word. We know the Spirit is here to impress our hearts, to woo us, to draw us closer to You, to write Your name upon our hearts. And so that's our prayer tonight in Jesus' name, amen. In one of his sermons, Billy Graham tells the story of the brilliant scientist Albert Einstein. Einstein, it seems, was traveling on a train through Europe. And as Einstein traveled, the man taking the tickets, the steward, walked down the aisle and went to each individual on the train and asked to see their ticket. It seems that Einstein just couldn't find his ticket. He fumbled through his belongings, he searched his pockets, he looked in his billfold, but all of his attempts produced absolutely nothing. He just couldn't find his ticket. So the train steward said, I know who you are, don't worry about it. I know you've got your ticket someplace, and he proceeded up the aisle. When he looked back, he saw Einstein on his knees, frantically looking under the seat, desperately looking for his ticket. And Einstein really seemed nervous, he seemed stressed out, he seemed anxious. So the ticket taker came back and he said, he wanted to ease his anxiety and said, Mr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. And Einstein said, I know who I am too, but I don't know where I'm going. You see, that single sentence reflects the thinking of millions of people in this world. They have little idea where this world's headed. At best, they have some vague, shadowy idea about the future. They're longing for a hope beyond tomorrow. But the great hope of the coming of Jesus gives us purpose for our lives. Seventh-day Adventists know where we're going. We recognize that all of history is coming to one grand climax in the second coming of Christ. Now, somebody as well said this, life has no value unless you focus on something valuable. Life has no value unless you focus on something valuable. And there can be nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. There can be nothing more valuable than having the hope of Jesus' soon return burning in your hearts. I've always been fascinated as I've traveled to Rome and I've gone into the catacombs. The catacombs were graves that were built in the earth underneath the city of Rome. And if you've ever traveled to Rome, you can go down into those caverns and you can walk into those narrow passageways and at times notice the artwork on the graves. Now there is something distinctly different about the pagan graves and the Christian graves that are underneath the city of Rome in the catacombs. The Christian's graves will say something like this, goodbye my love, goodbye until the morning because Christians never say goodbye for the last time, because the morning will shine, lightning will flash from the east to the west, 
the graves will open and Jesus Christ will come. Goodbye, my love, until the morning. But the pagan graves have inscriptions that are filled with hopeless despair. Let me give you just a couple of inscriptions that are written on pagan graves beneath the city of Rome in the catacombs. Here's one. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. What hopeless despair. Here's another one. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself, then join me. You see, for the pagan, there is no hope beyond the grave. For the pagan, there, the grave is a dark hole in the ground. Earth is a long night. Without, the grave is a long night without a morning. The philosopher Bertrand Russell, atheistic philosopher, put it this way. We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying out to the night in the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it's the voice of a drowning man, then the voice of another and still another. Bertrand Russell pictures life as a dark ocean, and he pictures us as standing out on the shore, and he pictures these dying people as drowning men and women, crying out in despair, crying out in hopelessness. Some time ago, a college newspaper had a contest for the college students to define the word life. And they offered a prize for the best definition of the word life. Here's the winner. One college student wrote this, life is the penalty that we pay for the crime of being born. Life is the penalty we pay for the crime of being born. What hopelessness, what despair. If you don't have something valuable to live for, some hope for tomorrow, some overriding purpose, life is no value. But Seventh-day Adventists are the most joyous people in the world. They're the most hopeful people in the world because beyond the craziness of life, beyond the famines and the earthquakes and the war, beyond the rising violence, beyond the immorality and depravity of our society, our hearts beat with a passion. Our hearts beat with a hope. We sense that Christ is coming and He's coming soon. We cling to the promise of Jesus' return there in John 14 where Jesus says, I will come again. We cling to those 1,500 places in the Bible that talk about the coming of Christ. Our Bible study tonight focuses on 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at most of that chapter. Although we'll be taking little detours from the chapter, that's the basis of our Bible study. The hope of the coming of Christ, the hope that burns in our hearts when tears fill our eyes and a loved one dies. The hope that burns in our hearts when we turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or ABC or CBS or NBC and we see the trauma and the difficulty and the heartache in our world. The hope that burns in our hearts when we walk through dark valleys. It is this hope that we're focusing on in this series. We begin with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken to you by the prophets 
and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Peter says, I'm not writing to you some novel new truth. There's significance here. Peter says, I have no new truth to unlock to you. You know, there are some people that are always trying to discover some new prophetic truth. They have some new time chart that they think that if everybody understands, they'll be ready for the second coming of Christ. They are time setters, and they're always looking at some fanciful interpretation of Scripture. That's not where Peter was at. Peter says, I write to you in my second epistle to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I want you to be mindful of the things that the prophets have spoken. I want you to be mindful of the things that the apostles have said. In other words, what Peter is actually saying is what we need is not some fanciful new truth. What we need is not some new time chart. What we need is not some speculation about when the judgment of the living is going to start as was suggested by someone in an independent ministry recently who believed that the judgment of the living started when the Pope came to Washington, D.C. And what Peter is saying is, I want to take you back, back to the bedrock reality of Christ's coming. What we need is not fanciful speculation. What we need is a pay praying church on their knees that with heartbroken repentance. What we need are people who are totally sold out for Christ. What we need in this generation is deeper commitment to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not some fanciful speculation. So Peter goes on when he talks about this great need for commitment, and that's what this chapter is about. It's about leading us to our knees. It's about total commitment to Christ. You know, I have spent so many years traveling in Eastern Europe and so many years with our brothers and sisters there in communist countries, and I've seen the deep commitment that these Christians have had. Many of them experienced prison for their faith. I've also come across the commitment that communists had to their cause. Let me tell you an amazing story and read to you an amazing letter. This letter is one of the more precious things I have in my possession. Now, it's good. the story is going to surprise you. It's a letter written by a college student. And this college student was a Christian. But a communist evangelist came to his university, and he was attending a university in the United States of America. It was in the late 60s or early 70s. And this college student, who was a Christian, engaged to a wonderful college young woman who also was a Christian. This young man began in college reading the writings of Marx and Engel, communist philosophers. And as he read them, he became enchanted with the thought of world communism. As he became enchanted with that thought, a communist evangelist held lectures on his university. This young man gave up Christianity for communism. And he wrote a letter to his girlfriend on why he could not continue the relationship with her as a Christian and why as a communist he had to break the engagement that he had with this Christian girl. And I'm going to read his letter to her. 
And, I, and as I read the letter of this communist, I want you to ask this question. Do I have the commitment to the cause of Christ to hasten the coming of Jesus by an all-out total commitment to him that this communist young man had? And I want to read his letter to you. This is the letter that he wrote to his girlfriend breaking off their commitment. He said to her, I can no longer enter into our engagement because I've become a communist. And we communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones that get shot. We get hung. We get lynched. We get tarred. We get feathered. We get jailed. We get slandered. We get ridiculed. We get fired from our jobs in America and in every other way made as uncomfortable as, as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed. We turn back to the party, that is the Communist Party, every penny of what we make except that which is necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or money for movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics and we are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communists. We communists have a way of life that cannot be bought for any price. We have a cause to fight for. We have a definite purpose to live for. There is one thing in which I'm in dead earnest. It's my communist cause. It's my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, my meat. I work at it in the daytime and I dream about it at night. Its hold on me grows, never lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to my cause, and I have to break our relationship. Does the cause of Christ call for less commitment than the cause to communism? Does it? Does the cause of Christ call for our best, our total, absolute commitment? The cause of Christ is much broader. The cause of Christ is much greater. The vision of the second coming of Christ makes the cause of communism look in its paltry nothingness as it is. We go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Jesus is calling us not to wade in kitty wading pools and pick up pennies as Christians. But deep calls to deep. And Jesus is calling us to dive into the word of God for the pearl of great price. Jesus is calling us not for some superficial Christianity. But Jesus is calling us to a commitment that is deep. He's calling us to the cross. And there at the cross we see the one who's given all for us. And we give all to him. There at the cross, we give ourselves away to the one who gave himself away. In the light of the second coming of Christ, in the light of eternity, we hear his call for deeper commitment. And Peter is not calling us to something fanciful. He's not calling us for some speculative time setting. He's calling us to the teachings of the prophets, the teachings of the New Testament writers, He's calling us to something deep. Now, in this generation, Peter says, verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, 
that the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of your coming? Now, don't miss the significance. They walk according to their own lusts. Their lifestyle dictates their understanding of the Word. In other words, because they're walking after their own lust, they scoff and say, where's the promise of His coming? There is a danger in Adventism today, and there's a danger in every Christian church, and it's this. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus has given His promise, I will come again. And every generation that passes is a generation that's less likely to believe we're living on the knife edge of eternity. Every generation that passes is more likely to settle into Laodicean complacency. Every generation that passes is more likely to allow the world and its secular humanistic values to put a noose around our neck and strangle out the hope of the second coming of Christ. But it is the scoffers that say, where is the promise of His coming? Because in true Adventist hearts, that promise never grows dim. Each passing year, that promise grows brighter and more glorious because we are no further from the second coming of Christ. We are closer to the second coming of Christ than we were 2,000 years ago, than we were 1,000 years ago, than we were 100 years ago. So here... Peter says in verse 3, knowing this first, scoffers come in the last days, walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Now, notice three times in 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about the promise. We find it in verse 3, uh, verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? We find it in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His what, everybody? Promise, as some men count slackness. We find it in verse 13, nevertheless, according to His what, everybody? Promise. Three times. What is a promise? You see, the Greeks speak of time and the passage of time which wipes things out. The Greeks speak of the mind as a blackboard slate and time as a sponge that passes across that slate erasing time from our mind. So it's important for us as the Adventist people to recognize the promise of Christ's coming. What indeed is a promise? A promise is a declaration. A promise is an assurance that somebody is going to do a particular thing at a particular time. A promise is a pledge. A promise is a bond. A promise is an oath. A promise is a contract. A promise is a commitment. A promise is a covenant. But a promise is only as good as the one making the promise. Do the Bible prophets make a promise to us? Enoch, the seventh from Adam in Jude 14, prophesies that Christ would come with 10,000 of His saints. David says in Psalm 50, verse 4, Our God will come and not keep silence. Isaiah says in Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will save you. 
Zephaniah says, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens greatly. The prophets of the Old Testament promise. They don't give us a wish. They don't give us a vain hope. They don't say maybe or I think so or it might take place. The prophets of the Old Testament, their words echo and re-echo down the stream of time. They give us the promise of Christ's coming. Matthew says, the Son of Man will come, chapter 16, verse 27, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels and then reward every man according to his works. The Apostle Paul says, repeat it with me, you know it, the Lord Himself shall do what? Descend from heaven with a what? Shout. And the voice of what? And the dead in Christ will what? Rise first. Then those which are alive and remain will what? Be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul says, the Lord himself not might descend. Maybe it said descend. I think he'll descend. The Lord himself shall do what? Shall descend from heaven. I like that word, shall. And then Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again. The promise of Christ's coming is as good as the prophets of the Old Testament. The promise of Christ's coming is, is as good as the apostles of the Old Testament. And the promise of Christ's coming is as good as the word of Jesus himself. I have traveled and lectured in university after university in Eastern Europe. And I remember after communism fell, I was invited to come to university after university to speak to the students. And very often, I would uh, go to those universities and would have question and answers after. And some student would raise, I remember when I was in Shekhesveta University, it was in uh, Hungary, it was Shekhesveta was the center of communism. And I, I lectured at one of the communist universities on the integrity of the Word of God. And after lecturing there, one of the students said, well, the Soviet astronaut, he, he, he went up into the heavens, Yuri Gagarin, and he didn't see God. Have you ever seen God? He went on this speech about atheism. And I said to him, look, let's suppose you have only two choices. I'm not going to ask you to believe. I'm just going to ask you an intellectual question. Let's suppose you only have two choices. Choice number one, you live you don't make sense of life. There's suffering, heartache all around you. And one day you die and you go into the grave and that's it. Worms eat your body. That's one option. Here's the other option. A loving God created us. He gave us the capacity of choice. This world plunged into sin. But Christ came and he provides eternal life. That one day beyond the suffering and sickness of life, you can live forever in a land with no suffering, sickness, heartache, and death. I'm not asking you to believe, but from an intellectual standpoint, if you have the choice that the grave is a dark hole on the ground and one day you're going to be a cosmic zero, or you have the choice that one day you're going to live the most fantastic life in the greatest joy, which one are you going to choose? See, atheism provides no hope for the future at all. Some time ago, my mother developed lung cancer. She had smoked 
two packs a day, pack and a half a day before she became an Adventist Christian. I was brought up in a home where, where my father was a Protestant, my mother was a Catholic. My father later became a Seventh-day Adventist, and um, mom eventually quit smoking and became an Adventist. My parents were very committed Adventists, and I became an Adventist when I was 17 years old. My mother developed lung cancer. It was a difficult time in our family. And I was traveling preaching, this was just a few years ago, and I would call home, get out my cell phone. I have an international cell phone. In any place I was in the world, I'd call home. And I said to my father, should I come home? He said, no, we don't know. Mom may last a month. Mom may last two months. We decided to bring mother home from the hospital. We didn't want her to die in the impersonal nature of a hospital. We wanted to, her to die at home. And so we took a hospital bed and we put it in the living room. And mom was there. We wanted her to die with the family around, running their finger through her hair and holding her hand and quoting the promises of the Bible and singing the hymns of heaven to her. So one day I was on a preaching trip and I called and my sister answered and she said, Mark, you better come. You better come quickly because mom has taken a turn from the worst. And so my wife and I got on a plane and we flew back to Orlando, Florida. My mother was living and my father in a... Deland, Florida at the time, and I get in late at night and um, got in at 12.30, 1 o'clock and drove to the house, and I said to my wife, we need to be really quiet when we get in. So we opened the door of the house, and I tried to be very quiet. Mother's hospital bed was in the, in the living room. You know, I remember it like it was yesterday. And in the darkness, she knew my footsteps. She had heard those footsteps since the time that I was a little boy and could walk, and she'd heard those pitter-patter of those feet, and she looked up at me, and she said, Mark, I knew that wherever in the world you were, you would come. I knew you'd be here. I knew you would come. My mother knew that I would never let her go through that suffering alone. She had my word that I would be there with her. And I was not going to let her down. You have the word of Christ that whatever suffering you are going through, whatever heartache you are going through, just as I had to be there at my mother's side, Christ through his spirit is there at your side. He's there to strengthen you and to encourage you. He's there to hold your hand in your suffering. But he's there to whisper in your ear, I am coming back for you. This is not some idle tale. This is not some make-believe elusive dream. Christ says, I am coming for you. I have promised it. I have promised it. And we read that promise. The scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? And you and I will say back to them, it is in the Old Testament prophets' writings. It's in the New Testament teaching of the apostles. And it's in the word of Christ himself. Now, notice the three things the scoffers forget. Here, Peter takes these scoffers on, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. We now go on to verse 5. For this they willfully forget. You know, it's one thing to forget something, it's another thing to willfully forget it. This they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and earth standing out of the water and in the water. 
the first thing they forget is that God created the world, that God stepped into time at creation, that we're not merely skin covering bone, we're not some genetic accident, we're not some abnormal anomaly because time brought together some chemicals that uh, some mysterious way. See, for the evolutionist, the great savior is time. You just have enough time and anything can happen. It, it causes a great, you have to believe in a greater miracle than creation. We believe that an intelligent designer designed, and we believe that this intelligent designer that designed the world is an all-infinite intelligence because if you look at his creation, you grasp his infinite wisdom and his omnipotence and his power. So here, Peter says they willfully forget, number one, that God acted in history, that there was creation. Number two, verse five, the second thing they forget is the flood by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They forget that God acted once. They forget that God allowed sin to go on and He said, it is enough. It is enough. In the flood, God said, sin and wickedness have gone on enough. And one day, God is going to say, enough. Enough crime, enough violence, enough war, enough famine, enough pestilence. God is going to say, enough divorce. God is going to say, enough immorality. God is going to say, enough. God acted in history at creation. God acted in history in the days of Noah. This is Peter's argument. Then he goes down, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved unto fire until the day of judgment. Peter says God acted in history when he created the world. God acted in history in the days of Noah. And Jesus Christ is going to come. And one day sin and wickedness are going to be consumed by the fires of his presence and the glory. Then he says, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, God views time differently than we view time. And the issue with God is not time. The issue is two things with God. You say, why doesn't Christ yet come? Because the task is not yet finished. Why does not Christ yet come? First, before a waiting world in a watching universe, Jesus is developing a people that are totally sold out for Him. As the old song says, nothing between my soul and my Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. God is looking for a people whose passion is for Him. All they want is what He wants. All they desire is what He desires. You remember of Jesus, it is written in Hebrews 10, 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do Thy will, O God. How can you know if you're totally surrendered to Christ? How can you know for certain that there's nothing between you and your Savior? Here's the way. Is there anything in your life that you're not willing to give to Him if He asks you for it? Is there something deep in your life that you're holding on to? There is no test of surrender in our lives when we do what we want to do and that's God's will. For example, I have never smoked in my life. So for me 
to give up smoking is no temptation. Because I never smoked. I've never drunk alcohol in my life. Even when I was a non-Christian, I was an athlete. So I didn't want to defile this body. I wanted it to be in good shape. Look, those were no tests for me. But I had a lot of other tests. A lot of other tests. Only me and God know them. This is not self-confession moment. <laughs> but look, here's how you know if you're fully surrendered. When you have a great desire to watch that program on TV, but you have that little twitch inside that you know that that's not something that Christ would have you watch. You know you're totally surrendered when you get on your knees and say, Lord, all I want to do is please you. See? When you are absorbed with a certain music style, articles of diet, you say, well, those are external standards. They are. But when we're saved by grace through faith, and the living Christ comes into our lives, it transforms our lives. We come to Christ just as we are, but we don't stay as we are. His grace is so good that it works. Paul speaks about the grace that leads to obedience. We are not saved by our works. But works become the result of knowing Christ. And anything that would displease Him, we do not want in our lives. What is Jesus waiting for? He's waiting for men and women that want nothing except what He wants. Whose hearts are one with His heart. And who are so transformed by His love so charmed by the cross, so enamored with His grace that they have to share it with others and they go out to a waiting world and a watching universe passionate about sharing Christ. Notice verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us that is, he suffers long with the sins of the world, suffers long with the pain and suffering of this world. Why? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is a task before us. There is a mission to be accomplished. Coming to the cross, saved by grace, transformed by love, empowered by the Spirit, we share His love with others. He is not willing that any should perish. So in pain, in suffering, education 263, the cross is a revelation to our dull senses that pain from its very inception is brought to the heart of God. Every deed of cruelty, every departure from right brings grief to Him. The world is a vast laser house and we can hardly bear it all, but He sees it all. Think of the pain and the suffering in God's heart as we mentioned the other night because of the sins of the world. But He is willing to suffer long to save your son, to save your daughter, 
to save your neighbor, to save your working associate. He would rather experience the pain, the cosmic pain of the sin of the world than come quickly and have some human being be lost. So the message of Christ is going to the ends of the earth and God is using consecrated men and women to share his love with others. I remember very well during those days of communism where we had secret typists and I saw their consecration, their dedication. One of our typists, Ola Galan, usually we'd organize them into groups of 12. They would type with one finger on one hand, not because they couldn't type with all their fingers, but they would type the Sabbath school lessons. They would type the Bible. They would type writings of Ellen White. Mrs. Olga Galan, one finger, one hand. Why'd they type one finger, one hand? Because they typed 12 carbons at a time. And they would have to hit the keys so hard to get through the 12 pages at a time. We would, we would bring to them secret typewriters. If we had a team of 12, not one would know the other ones. Why? Because if they were interrogated, they could tell everybody else they could tell the authorities about everybody else that was typing. And we said to them, look, if you get caught, this is what we want you to do. Turn in the leader. We want you to do that. The leader will suffer your prison sentence for you. We will smuggle you another typewriter, move you to another house so you can keep typing. Mrs. Olga Galan typed 2,000 Desire of Ages. 2,000. The first 12 years, she typed under a table in her living room. She would go there at 8 o'clock in the morning, sit underneath that table. There was a quilt that we put over the table. She would type. Why? Because if anybody heard the tick-tick of the typewriter, she would get arrested. The last eight years, it became too dangerous. Her husband fixed up a thick quilt in the closet, and she typed for eight years in the closet. She typed for 20 years and went blind. She typed 2,000 Desire of Ages. One of our best typists, one of our best typists was a woman with cerebral palsy. She could type with one finger on one hand. And the authorities never, never expected her. She turned out Sabbath school lessons, Bible passages that we bound and distributed. What is Jesus waiting for? Is he waiting for more wars? You think the angels are keeping score up there and saying, well, we've had... 1,042 wars, and now we've got to have 1,052 before Jesus comes. You think Jesus is waiting for more people to starve to death so the famines can get greater? You think he's waiting for more earthquakes and tornadoes? What is he waiting for? Or does he just have some point in time where he says, well, I'm just going to come no matter what? If that's true, why didn't he do it 1,000 years ago? Why didn't he do it shortly after the cross? I mean, if that's your theology, that he just has some point in time, why in the world would he ever let this thing go on for 2,000 years? See, there are three things that are happening simultaneously. Number one, wickedness is going to come to a point where before the whole universe, they will see the rising tide of wickedness, and Jesus will say, that's enough. Evil has come fully ripe. Secondly, righteousness will come fully ripe. God's people will be so sold out for him that all they want is him. And thirdly, as you see on this side, the rising tide of crime, violence, wickedness, this side, God's people on their knees praying, God's people on their knees seeking him, and God's people with open hearts, as we see that on this side, 
He will pour out His Spirit with abundance, and the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and Jesus will come. And He gives us an appeal here, verse 10 and 11, notice His appeal, but the day of the Lord will come. Aren't you thankful for that? As a thief in the night in which He's going to come quickly, speedily, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are therein are going to be burned up. Notice, therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Why is it put there? Therefore. He's tying together what's come before. He's coming as a thief in the night. He is long-suffering. The promise of His coming is burning in our hearts. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since this is reality, this no pipe dream, this no make-believe, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming in the day of God? In other words, what, what kind of godly life should you live in the light of the coming of Christ? The coming of Christ prompts us to be on our knees with our heart open. You see, the gospel, the Scripture has two great focal points. One is the first coming and the other is the second coming. Coming to the cross, our lives are transformed by His grace. Coming to the cross, we fall in love with the one that loved us with a love that is beyond imagine. Coming to the cross, we're changed. And changed at the cross, we long to tell the story because the cross points forward to the one that's coming, the one, the one that paid the price for us is coming to redeem us. We read that again, verse 13, verse 13, nevertheless, we according to His promise, His what everybody? Promise. Look for the new heavens and the new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. Therefore, notice, there's the therefore again. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's to connect what's come before. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace without spot and blemish. How in the world can sinful, decrepit humanity be found in Him without spot or blemish. Who is righteous enough to stand before a righteous God? Who is holy enough to stand before a holy God? Here is the good news. We appear before God in Christ, not in our righteousness, but in His. Everything we are not, He is. All we need is found in Him. Christ justifies us. In Him we stand before God as if we never sinned. Christ sanctifies us. If we let Him, He'll make us like He longs for us to be. He works in our hearts to change us, to make us over again. In Christ, we who are accepted as His sons and His daughters, when He comes, we will be like Him. You say, I don't know how Jesus could do that in my life. Do you believe the Bible? How many believe the Bible here? The Bible says, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, help me with this now, Jesus is the author and the what? He is the author and the what? Finisher of what? Our faith. How many of you believe that Jesus has begun something in you? He's done a little bit in you. He's begun something in you. 
Do you believe that? Is he going to finish the work he began in you? Jesus is the author, and he's the what? Finisher of our faith. Behold, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when he doth appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, I don't know how Jesus is going to do it in me, but I believe he's going to do it. Do you believe he's going to do it in you? Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. If we let him, he will do a work in us that will make the angels sing. Because before the whole universe, in the last days of earth's history, in this world that is a cesspool of sin, in the most degraded generation of all, he will manifest his grace before his people. He will manifest his power in their lives and through their lives. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look there at verse 6. Being confident. What's that word confident means? Can somebody give me that word? What's that word confident means? Being what? Sure. What's another word for sure? Certain. You got it. Being sure, being certain of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, who's the he that has begun a good work in you? Who's that? Jesus. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You and I, with all of our folly, with all of our sinfulness, with all of our weakness, can come to Him. And in the light of His soon return, we can say, Jesus, I trust You. Jesus, I trust You. Jesus, all I want is what You want. You have given all to me. I want to give all to You. And Lord, when I look at my weakness and my folly, when I look at my failures and my faults, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're working in my heart, Lord. I know I'm not what I was yesterday. I'm not what I was last year. Through your word and by your Holy Spirit, you're doing something in my life. And Lord, I want to trust you to complete the work you've started. There's somebody here tonight that you become discouraged and you wonder if Jesus can ever complete his work in you. And here's the incredible good news. He started a work in you and if you let him, he'll finish it. He's begun something in you and if you let him, he'll complete it. You know, I love that hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust." in Jesus. Tis so sweet to do what? Trust in Jesus. You've got a hymn there. It's on page 524. I want you to notice the hymn. You may have it. You may have the hymn on your iPhone. You notice who that hymn is written by. It's written by Louisa M. Steed. Let me tell you a little bit about Louisa M. Steed. She was an immigrant to America. She and her husband left Europe. They wanted a new start in their life. They heard of the shining city upon the hill, shining nation. 
they came, as they came on that immigrant's vessel, they came through to Ellis Island and they saw the Statue of Liberty there with those words engraved upon it by Ezra Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, longing to breathe free. They settled in New York City. They were immigrants. They didn't know the language. They didn't have many friends. It was in the early 1800s. They didn't have much of a job. Poverty-stricken. One day, Louise's husband said, look, let's go out to the beach. Let's go out to Long Island and let's take a picnic. And so they did. They were basking in the sunlight, enjoying the salt air. And as they sat in their blanket eating their picnic, they heard screams from the water. Louise's husband was, was a good swimmer, and he noticed a teenage boy drowning. Immediately, he leaped into the water and swam out to him. But the boy put his arms around Mr. Steed's neck, pulled him under, and they both drowned. Now imagine it. She's a young widow late 20s, early 30s, raising a four-year-old boy in New York City, poverty-stricken, destitute, with no friends. She cried herself to sleep night after night. But she was a Christian, began to read the promises of God's Word, my God shall supply all your need. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. She clung to those promises. One day there, in that little, small apartment, she knelt with her boy. She said, Dear Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I trust you. I don't know what you're going to accomplish in my life, but I trust you. She decided to take her boy out for a walk. As she opened the door and went on the porch, there was a basket of food. She didn't ever find out who put it there. But she came into the house so overwhelmed with gratitude that she sat down with a blank piece of paper and she wrote these words, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus said the Lord. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. He's promised to come again. He's not coming primarily to burn up the world. He's coming for you. He's lonely for you. He's not only promised to come, but he's promised to get you ready for his coming. He's begun a good work in you. And he's going to finish that work. You say, I'm not everything I want to be. I'm not everything I ought to be. Let him make you into the person you want to be. Let him work in your life with his divine grace. Let's pray together. Father, 
men and women have come to the altar tonight. They have come, many because they want a deeper faith. Romans 12 verse 3 says that you've given a measure of faith to every one of us. And as we exercise that faith, our faith grows. So just now, together we believe. We believe your promise that you're coming again. We believe the word of the prophets and the apostles and Christ himself. We also believe, Father, that what you've begun in us, you will finish. We don't know how that's going to happen, but day by day, we want to come to you. And by beholding you in your word, beholding you in the sacred scriptures, we know we will be changed because it's the law of the mind that it gradually adapts itself upon those subjects that it's allowed to dwell. So, Lord, we come tonight trusting your righteousness alone. We come tonight opening our hearts to receive your grace alone. We know that Christ is enough and we cling to him tonight. Father, thank you that in Christ victory is ours, that in Christ strength is ours. We praise you tonight that you are all that we need, everything that we've hoped for, and all that our hearts long for. As we leave this altar and as we leave this meeting, we go tonight claiming the promise that you are the author and finisher of our faith and you'll get the job done. We believe that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in the joy of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.